I just ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we will be studying the first half of the parable of the prodigal son this morning, which is found in verses 11 to 24. And as you're turning there, I have a question that I'd like you all to be thinking about. This isn't one you need to answer, I just want you to think about it between you and God. What makes you happy? Don't think about the Sunday school answer, think about it. What brings you satisfaction? You know, there's a lot of things that satisfy us, aren't there? Think about a nice inch and a half thick steak, cooked medium rare, salted well, compound butter on top, you bite into that thing and it's like, mmm, that is satisfying. For some of you, there's nothing better than playing golf outside when it's 70 degrees, sunny, no wind. When I get to play with my kids or go on a nice date with my wife, it's satisfying. We could go on and on with things that satisfy us. There's lots of things. But I have learned something over the years, and I continue to learn this. All of those things that we just talked about might make you happy for a little bit. But they won't keep you happy. I've learned that if those are the things that I pursue to be happy and satisfied, I will only find myself to be empty and miserable. The only thing that really brings lasting satisfaction to me is my relationship with Jesus Christ. I really mean that. I'm not talking about the stuff He gives. I'm not talking about the people He puts in my life. I'm talking about my relationship with my Savior. When I want to know Jesus for who He is, not what He can do for me, I find that I am looking to Him and I'm finding satisfaction. And that's my heart for you all as well. I want you to know and enjoy true satisfaction in Christ. And I really love this parable because we see that true satisfaction is found in knowing Jesus. Through the Father's character in this story, Jesus shows us His beauty and His goodness and His love. We see His patience. We see His willingness to take on shame. And if you're here today, and if you have not given your life to Jesus yet, if you have not confessed your sin to Him and begged Him for salvation, I want you to know this. Your sin does not scare Jesus away. You are not too bad for Him to save. And Jesus stands in front of your life and He's waiting for you to turn and come to Him. And if you are saved, then friend, if you have confessed your sin and believed in Jesus as your Lord and risen Savior, this parable is still for you. In it, we have the opportunity to get a glimpse of the depth of the love of God for us. And when we see it right, just this little glimpse is enough to make you fall on your face and worship God. It's enough to make you hate the sin that still clings so closely to us. So I beg you right now, pray to Jesus and ask Him to help you see His love and compassion in this parable so that you can praise Him. He's worthy of all our praise, is He not? 
I want to praise Him with you. With that in mind, let's read our passage. It's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 24. It says, And He said, this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, You are so beautiful. And Your heart is astounding. And I would just ask for Your help this morning. That You would help us to see us as we are. With no deception to recognize where we're at before you. Please strike us with your goodness and the eagerness of your love and your desire for us to come to you. If we're saved this morning, Lord, please help us to just be in awe and to marvel at this outrageous love that you have for us. Please help us to long to know you more so that we can live for you with all our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's look at our first point, the outrageous act. Again, verses 11 and 12 say, And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
In verse 11, we're introduced to a father who has two sons. And this story that Jesus tells opens up with a wild twist. The younger son does something that is absolutely outrageous. He says, Dad, you know how when you die, I'm going to get some of your stuff? I want it now. That is shocking. The listening Jews would have been horrified by this. How dare this son make a request like this? Their culture is all about honor, and this went against everything they cared about. Exodus 20, verse 12, God commanded children, honor your father and your mother. And for this young son to make a request like this is wildly outrageous. He's basically saying, Dad, you're in my way and I wish you were dead. Matthew 12, 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. This son's heart is saturated with wickedness. Sin and evil are oozing out of it. His words drip with pride and sinful intent. And in that ancient Middle Eastern culture, Anyone who is listening to this story, even tax collectors and sinners, would expect the father to respond with violence against his son. You remember maybe a year ago when Will Smith slapped Chris Rock? I don't remember much about that event or what was said, but I do remember scrolling through Twitter and seeing Chris Rock say something and it just infuriated Will Smith. His sense of honor was offended, and he responded with violence. His face twisted up in rage. He stormed onto the stage. He cranks his hand back, and he slaps Chris Rock as hard as he can. That is how these Jewish listeners would have expected this father to respond. His son would have been slapped across the face, and that was likely the best thing that would have happened. He very likely would have been stripped of his privileges and kicked out of the family. It was permissible by Jewish law to have his son stoned to death. That's how much Jews cared about honor. They would have congratulated the father for doing this to his son. But what does the father actually do? Instead of responding as the Jews expected, instead of kicking his son out of the family or having him stoned, verse 12 says, and he divided his property between them. This is incredible. The Greek word for property in this verse is bios. The father is literally dividing up his life. They didn't have giant bank accounts back then. They had flocks of sheep. They had goats. They had land. They had their house. Deuteronomy 21.17 says the younger son was entitled to one-third of everything the father owned when he died. And that's what the father lets him have now. For the father to do this was expensive. It was harmful. It meant his family would have less to live on. It meant he could not be as generous as he used to be. This hurt him. But what hurt more than his economic loss was the pain of his love being rejected by his son. He loved his son, but his son hated him. 
his son wanted out, and so the father let the son pursue his sinful desires. Why? Well, perhaps we see the answer in Romans 1, 24 and 25. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. There comes a point when you lust after sin, when you long for it, when you reject God and His Word, when you do not love Him that He will give you over to your sin. And here's my question. Is that you? As you sit here, are you chafing under the restrictions of being here at church and living with parents who love God? When you're at school, do you pursue wicked things? When you're at home, does your heart long to do wickedness? Are you anticipating college and looking forward to it where you can get away from your parents, away from people who know you so you can pursue your heart's desire? If that's you, I do want to thank you for being here. But I also want to let you know something. If this is you, your soul is in peril and you stand on the precipice of eternal destruction under the judgment of God. But it doesn't have to be that way. I would just ask you, just listen a little while longer. I hope to show you what happens when you pursue your sinful desires. But I also want to show you the amazing, outrageous love of Jesus for all who turn to Him. No matter how bad they are. Let's look at our next point. Pursuing sinful desires leads to misery. John chapter 15 verse 13 says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. We read Matthew 12.34 earlier, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and we saw the young son's heart and his demand for his inheritance, and now his actions confirm what was in his heart. And boy, is it ugly. Beginning of verse 13, not many days. He can't wait. His greed and his desire to pursue sin is consuming him. He's been under his father's roof long enough. He doesn't love his father. He doesn't love his family. He wants nothing to do with them. So he gathers up his share of his father's life. He makes a quick deal to sell it and get cash. And he runs. Verse 13 says he took a journey into a far country. Again, to the listening Jews, this is shocking. Jews hated Gentiles. Jews did not want to be like Gentiles. They were unclean, idol-worshipping, filthy heathens. But here's this son, and he's running off to be like him. He hates his father. He never had a relationship with him. He never loved him. He hates anyone that God loves. He hates everything God had given him. And so he wants to go where no one knows his name. Why? 
He wants to be in a place where he can sin and no one is going to judge him. That's why he runs away to a far country. He shows up to a foreign town. He's far away from the eyes of his father and he wastes his money on sinful pleasures. Just kind of makes me think of Solomon. He was blessed by God. He knew all about God. But for so much of his life, he did not love God. If you read Ecclesiastes, you see Solomon remembering how he pursued every sinful thing his heart desired. He held himself back from nothing. And like Solomon, our young son was blessed by his father. He was rich in his father, but instead of loving him, he chased every sinful desire in his heart. He held himself back from nothing. Luke 15.30 says he devoured his property with prostitutes. And so he burns through his wealth like a handful of dry leaves in a campfire. One third of all the riches his family spent generations working to save is just gone. How did he get here? This all started with a lack of a relationship with his father. He knew all about his father, but he did not love him. And so he did not want to live with him. He did not want to follow him. He wanted to live for himself and make his own decisions. And this is the fruit. As he is frantically, desperately pursuing sin, we see that his heart is not satisfied. All his sin and effort to make himself happy was vanity. It was empty. You say, how do I know that? Well, I know that because he kept spending money. At first it was fun. But as he kept pursuing sin, it became unfulfilling. And later, it was desperate. No matter how much money this prodigal spent, no matter how hard he tried, he was never satisfied. What he thought would make him happy left him broken and empty. All his pursuits or vanity. And here's what I would ask you to consider this morning. Maybe, just maybe, are you like this young man? In the quietness of your heart, do you long to pursue sinful things? Maybe you don't do this with your actions, but does your heart desire Jesus? Or does it desire something else? What do you think about all the time? The beauty of Jesus? Or something sinful? What do you think will make you happy? Friend, if you think sinfulness is found in the things of this world, then look at this young man. He had a fortune. This young man was rich. But no matter how much he spent, no matter what he did, he was never happy. He was never satisfied, and you will not be satisfied in sin either. There is never enough. You are made in God's image, friend. You have been specially crafted to worship God, not yourself. You will never find happiness in pursuing sin. You will only find emptiness like this young son. He lost everything. 
He is covered in shame. It's hard to imagine a more sinful person than this. But it gets worse. Verse 14 says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he's blown everything the Father gave him, all the riches, and after his wealth is exhausted, after he pursued all the sinful desires of his heart, after he discovers the emptiness of worshiping himself, and quite coincidentally, a severe famine arose in the country he's living in. This famine was bad. For this ancient Gentile nation, they didn't have refrigerators or good storehouses. And a severe famine meant that people starve and die in really ugly ways. In this kind of famine, people get so desperate, they will eat anything they can put in their mouths. Rats, dogs... Shoe leather, trees, trash, everything was eaten. People would be dying all over the place, and survivors were too weak to bury them, so there would be dead people rotten in the streets. Entire villages would just wither up and disappear. We don't know hunger like this. But when the Jewish listeners were listening to Jesus, that's what they were thinking of. This is horrifying. And here is this young man. He spent all his money. He's destitute and he's starving. And look at his response in verse 15. It says, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This guy, he's covered in sin and shame. He is miserably hungry. And what does he do? He says, hmm. I should get a job. Isn't that what we tend to do? When we're living in sin and we get into a hard place, instead of turning to God, we try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We say, what can I do to solve this problem? How can I work my way out of this and still keep my sin? That's what this young man is saying. He still does not fear God. He does not want to turn back to Him. And so he hires himself out to a Gentile. The word here means he literally glued himself to someone. He is a beggar. And he finds someone that has some stuff. And he clings to them with all his might. He's desperate. He grabs on to this guy. He's holding his leg. He won't let go. And so this Gentile citizen is trying to do something, anything to get rid of him. And so he sends him off into the fields to feed pigs. If the story was bad before, now the Jews that are listening are just disgusted. Jews don't feed pigs. Jews don't have anything to do with unclean animals. It's hard to wrap our minds around how gross this is to the Jews. But here's the best example I could come up with. It would be like you working inside a sewer in a t-shirt and shorts full of human waste, cleaning it with your bare hands. It would be unbelievably nasty. You would reek. You'd be covered in filth. Washing your hands isn't good enough. You'd have to spend weeks away from people before they'd want to be around you. 
And that's where this prodigal son is at. In his sin and unwillingness to turn back to his father, he is desperate enough to do even this terribly nasty job. And he's still not at rock bottom. Look at verse 16. It says, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. As this young son is starving, as he is dying, he looks at pig slop, the trash that they eat, and he craves it. His mouth is watering as he smells the nasty trash they eat. Have you ever been really hungry? I'm talking like really hungry and you smell a warm chocolate chip cookie. The smell of that chocolate and the cookie dough, you're just imagining it and your mouth starts salivating. You take that cookie and as you're bringing it to your mouth, sometimes it almost hurts to take a bite because your mouth is salivating so hard. That is how this young son is feeling as he stares at trash. He has paid a terrible price for his sin. He is living like a pig. Like Nebuchadnezzar lived among the beasts of the field and ate grass like an animal, our young Jew is living in the same way. He's hungry. He is desperate. He is salivating over pig slop. And look at the rest of verse 16. It says, no one gave him anything. It's a reminder, the prodigal son is not alone. In this distant Gentile country, people are around him. But as these people look at him, instead of caring for him, their eyes are cold and heartless. Like the prodigal once hated his father, these people hate him. They echo his words, why can't you just die already? And here, in the mud, as he fights to eat trash that pigs eat, he has finally reached the bottom. Friends, he thought he could manage his sin. He thought he could keep it under control, but he was wrong. His sin took everything from him. And as you sit here and listen today, this is where sin will take you. Sin may sound enticing. It may smell good. It promises freedom. But it only brings slavery. It promises life, but it brings death. Sin is hateful rebellion against God. It is to wish that God was dead. That's convicting to me. Every time we sin, whether we're saved or not, that's what's happening inside our hearts. Right now, what are you pursuing? Do you long to love Jesus? Do you beg Him to see His glory? Or are you chasing something else? Do you want the praise of men? Do you want the lusts of your eyes and the lusts of your flesh? What would your life say that you love? You know, Jesus sees every thought that you have. He knows what's inside your heart. 
what would he say? There is nothing more important than this question, friends. Do you love Jesus or not? Your life shows the answer. And if you don't love Jesus, if you have not turned to him, then I'm scared. Your souls are in danger. My greatest fear for you is that you wake up and stand before God and hear Him say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't want that for you. And if you do love Jesus, if you have been saved by Him, but you're feeling the guilt and the shame of living with some sin that you're not ready to let go of, I just want you to know it will not make you happy. It will not satisfy you, and you do not have to hold on to it. You can give up your sin, and you can see Jesus. I would beg you, just listen to the rest of the prodigal story so you can find true satisfaction. Let's look at our next point. Repent of your sin and see the goodness of the Father. Verse 17, But when he came to himself... He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Verse 17 is so striking. He's at rock bottom. He is miserable. He is destitute. He is alone. He is dying. He has no hope until he came to himself. This reminds me so much of Daniel 4.34 when Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to him. Sin had promised satisfaction, but it consumed him. It promised life and freedom, but it was killing him. Sin was blinding the prodigal son. But then he came to himself. The fog of sin blew away, and he saw himself clearly. Here he was, fighting with pigs to eat their food. And in his wretched state, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. This is so amazing. The prodigal son remembers his father, and he remembers that his father is good. Here's how we understand his father is good. The hired servants he speaks of in verse 17 are day laborers. People like this would be hired a day at a time. They were not guaranteed tomorrow. They were paid barely enough to have food for that day. Normal people who hired these men did not care about them. They paid them, they used them up, and they moved on when they couldn't keep up. But this son says something amazing. He says, my father's hired men have more than enough bread. What does that tell you about the father? Other people only pay what's required. But my father is generous He pays them so their needs are abundantly provided for. He is merciful and gracious and compassionate. And as the prodigal son realizes this, he wonders, if that's how my father treats the worst people in society, maybe he'll treat me like that too. Maybe. 
he won't hate me for what I've done. And so he says in verses 18 to 20, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. Now this is so beautiful. The prodigal son is convicted of his sin. And notice this. He is convicted of his sin against his father. His focus is not on his circumstances. His focus is not on how other people are to blame for his situation. He does not have bitterness. He is not angry. He sees the goodness of his father. And all he can think about is how I sinned against him. How he took his goodness for granted how he wished he were dead, how he ran from him, how he lived for his sin instead of his father, how he loved himself. And as the weight of sin stacks up, he breaks. And his heartbroken, tear-filled cry is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, I am not worthy to be called your son. He understands that he has destroyed his relationship with his father. He has brought shame and dishonor on him. He is not worthy. He does not make excuses. He does not try to justify himself. He knows he deserves death. And notice this. In his awareness of who he is, he does not even dare to ask for forgiveness. He has no expectations. He's making no demands on his father. Verse 19b, treat me as one of your hired servants. He knows he doesn't deserve anything, but he throws himself on his father's mercy anyway. He's willing to do anything, whatever it takes to be reconciled to him. He says, treat me like the worst servants you have. Dad, if you'll take me, let me stay around. Please. So verse 20, And he arose and came to his father. The prodigal son knows he deserves to die for what he did. He is convicted of his sin, but he moves toward his father anyway. His hope in his father's mercy and goodness draws him near. And in that moment... His Father is beautiful to Him. He's desirable. He is good. And He is merciful. And as the prodigal son remembers this, as his heart breaks under the conviction of his sin, he turns away from his sin so he can run to his Father. He leaves the sinful desires he was pursuing. He leaves the Gentile country. His wicked heart is now overflowing with shame and disgust. And he remembers his father's goodness and it derives him to action. So he runs from his sin so that he can throw himself on his father's mercy. In that moment, he was willing to accept whatever consequences may come. He was willing to bear the shame and the dishonor. He was willing to bear the humiliation of everybody knowing his sin. He didn't care about that. No more hiding. He just wants to be close to his father so he can get a taste of his goodness. 
That's why he runs to him. Friends, for all of us, whether we're saved or not, this is what it looks like to repent of our sin. We remember God's goodness. We remember who He is. And we are crushed by the conviction of our sin. We understand we have broken our relationship with God. We don't make excuses. We don't hide anything. We just run to Jesus and say, I have sinned against you. I turned my back on you. I hated you. I ran from you. But I understand now that I've sinned and I want to do anything to be reconciled. Whatever it takes. That, friends, is what repentance is. It is a conviction of sin that leads to action. And that action is to turn from your sin and run to Jesus and throw yourself on His goodness and mercy. We do that for the very first time when we are saved. And as we grow in Christ, we keep doing this. We hate our sin and we love Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. And when we sin, we throw ourselves at His feet and beg Him for mercy. Every single one of you here, friends, has been convicted of sin. I have too. What I want you to think about is this. In your conviction, have you actually turned away from your sin and ran to Jesus? Or have you buried your conviction under more sin? Friends, there's only one way to experience the depths of the Father's love and compassion, and that's to come to Him. Let's look at our next point. The second half of verse 20 says, But while He was still a long way off, His Father saw Him and felt compassion and ran and embraced Him and kissed Him. This is just an amazing verse. While He's a long way off, His Father saw Him. What does that tell you? It tells us that the father never stopped looking for his son. Before his son sees him, before he can confess his sin, before he can get close, before he can do anything, his father sees him. And when he sees his son, what does he do? Does he cross his arms and wait for him to come back? Does he make him grovel at his feet? Does He make Him work to earn back that estate that He squandered? No. As He sees His Son return, He is overjoyed. His heart is full of love. His compassion is so strong, it makes His whole body hurt. In spite of all the pain He endured, in spite of the cost, in spite of the open hatred His Son had for Him, This father wants to have a relationship with his son. And when he sees him trudging toward him, broken and miserable, he runs to him. His son is unclean. He's covered in filth. He stinks. His soul is overflowing with sin. He is wretchedly disgusting. He's broken, but he is here. And as the father draws near, as he sees his son, none of that slowed him down or tempered his compassion. 
he rushed to his son and he hugged him tight. Literally, he threw himself around his neck. He was crying tears of joy. He kissed his dirty son all over his head. He loved him and he forgave him. In verse 21, muffled by the joyful cries of his father, the son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's all he can say. His life is filthy. His wallet's empty. He's broken. Again, this is what real repentance of sin looks like. There's no expectations here on God's response. There's no conditions on His repentance. There's no deception regarding the extent of His sin. The Son just confessed it all. He knew He deserved nothing. He knew He was not worthy to have a relationship with His Father, but He wanted one. That's why He threw Himself on His Father's mercy. And notice this. The Father's grace and compassion and love had intercepted His heart before He had a chance to share the rest of His offer. The Son was willing to work as a slave for His Father. He was willing to do anything, whatever it took, to earn a relationship with His Father. But His Father did not require that of Him. In overwhelming love, in astounding grace, His Father had already stooped down to His broken, stinky Son and picked Him up. His Father was eager to call Him Son. And just like that, He restored Him. I just ask you to listen to this quote from the book Gentle and Lowly. It says, Consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, He is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot begin to fathom the sheer purity, the holiness, the cleanness of His mind and heart. The simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did He do when He saw the unclean? What was His first impulse when He came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded His heart. The longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We can all testify to the humaneness of touch, can't we? A warm hug does something that warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there's something deeper here in Christ's touch of compassion. He was reversing the curse. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. And when we turn to Jesus, friends, this is what He does for us. This is His heart. He moves toward us. He makes us clean. And this is His free gift to us. He does not require restitution. He does not require penance. He does not make us earn salvation. It is a freely offered gift. There's just one requirement. That's that we recognize our sin and turn to Him. 
It's that we confess our sin against Him. And friends, when we beg for salvation from Jesus our Lord and believe in our hearts He is our risen Savior, He will save us. That is our hope. And this is my satisfaction. If you truly turn to Jesus, this is how He forgives you. And He wants you to come to Him. That's the goodness and mercy of Jesus. Look at how the Father celebrates the return of His Son. Verses 22 to 24, The Father said to His servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and put it on Him, and put a ring on His hand, and shoes on His feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my Son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This father is so overjoyed to have his repentant son back. He puts his own special robe on him. He places a signet ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. You know, in that day, slaves went barefoot, but not his son. His son received all the rights and privileges of being in his family. And in amazement over the father's action and the return of the son, they threw a party. What a merciful, amazing love this is. Friends, there is no one who is beyond this kind of love. If you choose to stay in your sin and not turn to Jesus, then when you die, you will be judged by God. And you will suffer eternal punishment in hell. But, if you do turn to Jesus... I want you to know your sin does not scare Jesus away. You are not too bad to be forgiven. He stands right now in front of your life. And He's waiting for you to turn to Him. That's who He is. And knowing Him, having a relationship with Jesus is the only place where you will find true satisfaction. My question for those of you who have not turned to Christ yet is, will you do that? Will you be like the prodigal son and go to Jesus and confess your sin? If you do, if you cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus and confess with your mouth that He is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised Him from the dead, I promise you, you will be saved. And I promise that because that's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 say. And friends, if you are saved, but you're living in sin, won't you remember your Savior and turn to Him? I would beg you, look at your sin and see it for what it is. It is so bad that the only Son of God, the only thing God did not have more of, had to die. Jesus sees you. And he's waiting. What will you do? For those of us who are saved and are walking close with Jesus, don't you want to fall on your face and worship him as you see his love? How can we not love him more when we see his heart for us? And I would just ask you this, is Jesus pleased with your life? Are you living for Him? 
you know, I want to live for Him with all my life. I want to be satisfied in Him alone, and I want to do that with you. I'm here for you if you ever want to do that with me. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and... What do you say in response to that kind of love? I guess we just say thank you. Lord, please consume us with a vision of who you are that causes the world to pale in comparison. Please show us the temporal nature, the vanity of everything that the world offers that seems so enticing. And please help us, Father, as we gaze upon your glory to be satisfied in you alone. In your name we pray, amen.